Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Welcome back to Work Human Radio. I am your host, Todd Schneck, joined by my friend and colleague, Mike Wood. I have been looking forward to this one since you rolled out the agenda for the show <laughs> at Work Human 19. Boy, this lady needs no introduction. Not uh, at all. We talk a lot about in business about the importance of transparency and authenticity. And to me, she is the model of how one, how a leader, how a human should demonstrate those ideas. So she's such a great lady and a good friend of mine. I've known her a long, long time now. It's welcome, Kat Cole, the president of Focus Brands. Kat, my friend, good to see you. Welcome to the show. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I have a feeling that those listening to the show have a pretty good beat on who you are. But just in case, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you and your story. Yeah. So I am first and foremost a wife to an awesome dude and a mom to an 18-month-old little boy and Imprego with number two. We saw that Thank on, you. on Instagram. <laughs> but I'm also the president and COO of a global franchise company called Focus Brands. And we have brands like Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's and Jamba Juice and Moe's and Schlotsky's and McAllister's and Carvel Ice Cream. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, we show up in a lot of places and in a lot of people's lives. It's a franchise organization and we employ you know, about 100,000 people around the world through those franchise locations and have these amazing brands. I've been with that company for nine years. I started first as the president of Cinnabon, and then I grew as the company grew. Prior to that, I was with Hooters Restaurants for 15 years. I started out as a hostess when I was 17 years old and became a waitress and then oddly started opening franchises around the world when I was 19. It's a story in and of itself. And it changed the trajectory of my career. Instead of pursuing an engineering degree and going into law school, like I planned, I was the first person in my family to get into college. I ended up dropping out of school because I was traveling so much, opening franchises and embarking on an unexpected career in global business and franchising, retail and food. And prior to that, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm the child of a single parent, alcoholic father, helped raise my two sisters and really saw this incredible model of resilience in my mom and resourcefulness, which certainly is what shaped me and allowed me to do unusual things at such a young age. Well, it's just wonderful hearing you know, your background from where you started and where you've come. It is a true success story. Can you tell us kind of like, what was that initial, so you get the opportunity to open up some franchises. Mm -hmm. You're 19, right? Mm -hmm. 19. How did you take that leap to be like, I am now opening up franchises and how did you continue to be positive about like, I know what I'm doing and did you hit any obstacles along the way? Because you're so young. Yeah, I was always positive, but it was never because I thought I knew what I was doing. It was because I was blindly optimistic and I was getting to travel as a 19-year-old. I mean, who doesn't love that? So when I was asked to go, I really didn't think it was a career move. I thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's not unusual for retail companies to ask seasoned hourly employees to go help travel and train new employees when you launch a new market. That's super typical. What's unique is that it was Hooters. What's unique is that I was on the younger end of employees Mm -hmm. and also that it was Australia, that it was crossing ocean. So there were some extremes involved in the story that make it a bit more fantastical than what it seemed to me at the time. I was an employee. I did really well. I was already a trainer in the restaurants. The company was growing and they asked me to be a part of that growth. It felt super normal. What was unusual is that I had only been out of the state of Florida twice in my life for cheerleading competitions, and I did not have a passport, yet I still said yes when they asked me to go. (laughs) Then I bought a ticket to Miami, stood in line, 
expedited my passport so I could legally exit the country. So I'd like to say I flexed my hustle muscle. Like I, I said yes before I was ready, but then I did the hard work yep. to fill the gap. But when I got back, I made up my classes from college from Australia. I made up my classes from college and I just thought I was going to go back to work, being a waitress, being a cook, working all the jobs in the restaurant, paying my way through college. I really did not think it was a thing. I didn't think it was opening franchises. It was the opportunity to go open a restaurant in Australia, but I didn't realize the bigness. (laughs) Yeah, you got to say yes. I didn't realize the bigness of it. I didn't know there were more countries being launched after that. I would very soon after be asked to go launch the first in Central America, the first in South America. And then I realized it was a thing. And I also realized I was better at it with less effort than some people. I had the tolerance for the chaos and I had the curiosity to understand the local culture. And I had the humility to be wrong and ask for help. And Mm -hmm. that really helps you when you're in foreign environments. And not everyone has that approach or style naturally as a personality. doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just certainly helpful when you do have that in that particular line of business. And it was when I got back after multiple openings and I was failing college and I had to drop out that I had to say, wow, I have no guarantees. No one's offering me a salary a contract. I was still an hourly employee. There are no guarantees that there's more of this, but it seems like there will be. the experience itself is a guarantee that you're going to have to carry wherever you go. Yeah. And so I dropped out of college in hopes I would continue to travel. Luckily, the company was growing so much, they needed someone who understood these international openings to become a corporate employee. So I got offered a corporate job at the age of 20 wow. to move to Atlanta and help run the training department. And I was so doing was my first nothing by that age. <laughs> I was just a loaf. Well, Kat, most people would not have said yes to that opportunity yeah. because there's something holding them back. Can you share any counsel to someone listening who probably has been offered a chance to do something big and bold like that, but were afraid and didn't. Yeah. How can you help them get over that hill? I think, and again, I'm not a researcher and I don't know for sure, but I have come to believe that the reasons people say no to something that someone else says yes to is because of their beliefs around what preparation is needed and in particular, what level of perfection and readiness is needed. And so I would just encourage everyone to remember, look, we all have our firsts. I had my first opening. I had my first shift as a cook. I had my first shift as a bartender. I was never perfect on those first shift. It was just progress. It was learning. And of course I made mistakes and I didn't shut down the bar the right way because a seasoned bartender knows what they're doing. And I missed storing the vodka the right way, you know, or whatever. So reframing progress as journey, learning as the journey, not perfection, What's the requirement? The requirement is the humility and the curiosity to ask questions, but the courage and the confidence to make some decisions and take bold moves. But it's a blend of those two. It's not blind confidence because you think you're perfect and ready. And it's not only humility because if you're only willing to ask questions and not take action, you're just a student and you're not going to get things done. So instead of expecting to be ready for the thing, understand you're never ready. And if you get to the point where you are really ready, you're super late to the game. There's so many other people that would say yes before they're ready. But don't just say yes before you're ready. Be willing to do the hard work because yes, there is a gap between me who was a first time restaurant opener and someone who's done it 10 times. Mm -hmm. And a company shouldn't get a lesser result because they took a chance on me, which meant I had to work harder. I had to ask for more help. I had to do more homework, but that's just the path when you are someone who says yes easily. But it was great, you know, and echoing on Gary Hamill with bureaucracy and getting rid of that. It was great that your leadership allowed you to take that chance and allowed you to make mistakes and to learn because they saw something in you. Yeah. Some companies wouldn't do that. They just go by the, how many years you have opening up stories. 
Yeah. You know, one, they assembled a team that was a mix of newbies and a little bit seasoned. So they were smart. The other thing I like to joke about, but it's super true, is this was Hooters restaurants. And so it's not as if there were Wharton MBAs beating (laughs) on the door from the outside to come get the opportunity. They had to give people inside opportunities. So it was funny how much I learned the power of developing people from within. In part, that restaurant chain did it because they had to. The nature of the brand was very polarizing. The people inside of it loved it. The people outside of it judged it. Mm -hmm. But yet that's the way I learned to be. And so when I went to companies that were not as polarizing, that were more sort of neutral in terms of how people felt about them, I still had a leaning toward developing talent from within and giving people a shot early because it's what benefited me and I saw the benefits. But I really believe that company did it in part because they had to. One of the things you said this morning, by the way, your keynote was outstanding. Thank thank you you. for sharing uh, all of that truth, was one of your job is to enable your team to do their best work. Mm -hmm. I define a leader as someone who's responsible for making more leaders. Talk about that more. Yeah. I think it's such a great point. Part of people doing their best work is showing up their best for others, which ultimately puts them in a position to be a great leader. And I had a stage in my career where I didn't focus on that enough. I focused more on the masses and not on the multiplying the leadership capability. And I ended up getting really burned out because I was trying to fix every problem and trying to hire every person. And I really just missed it. You know, and I got so caught up in the front line and in the customer that I missed that next level of making developing leaders a conscious priority. And I paid a hefty price for it in my time, my energy, and the quality of my work. Mm -hmm. So I came about it not intellectually, not prescribed, not by some great system or program, but because I made mistakes and realized, wow, I'm only able to do more when there are leaders that are with me, not just behind me, but with me. And made that much more of a conscious approach and then realize that it's not just about leaders as a level or leaders as a title, but bringing out the leader in every Mm -hmm. person, bringing out the courage, the ability to question things that should be questioned, the ability to, no matter what your level, to put your arm around someone and say, it's okay. There is a leader inside of every, I truly believe that it's not just someone who has title and other humans that they are accountable for, but leadership of self thought leadership in a company, modeling behavior. And so it went from, wow, I need to develop actual leaders in a title to bring out the leadership mentality in everyone in the organization. So what I loved, you were talking this morning about how you had a franchisee come up with the tiny uh, yeah. Cinnabon, <laughs> um, that really what you needed to do as a company is to find this innovation that's out there yeah. and bring it to scale. I've given talks in the past about the Egg McMuffin. People don't <laughs> know that it was invented in San Diego. It was a lone franchisee. He put the you know ham, egg, and cheese on an English muffin, started selling it. And Ray Kroc of McDonald's saw that, you know, this is a whole new market. Yeah. And so but he had the resources to bring it to scale. So I just love that, you know, you found that one franchisee who has the little tiny Cinnabon <laughs> and now it's rolled over. And how much of a percentage of oh, did you was, get? I mean, now it's probably close to 30 or 40% of sales. Wow. I mean, it's so, massive because there's an even tinier one now that's only yeah. 80 calories. So like, if, if you go to a Cinnabon and you get the little tiny cinnamon right. roll, brainchild of a franchisee. A brainchild of a franchisee. And so many things are. What was ironic about that experience, yet I now know was an ironic, it's quite common, is that there were multiple franchisees doing very innovative things that were trying to consciously hide them because they would get in trouble Mm -hmm. for veering off the approved path. And so it just makes you think, how often is that happening in other parts of the organization? You know, people who figured something out 
a better way to do something. And they think it in their head, like, hey, we don't have to do it that way. There's a better way, the naysayers. But you have to like find them and then make sure they know step one, you're not going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Step two, I think this actually could be helpful. And step three, I need you to help me figure out if it can be scaled, if it's as good for everyone else as it is for you. And that takes curiosity and courage. And you might have to deal with a cultural pushback because if other people have gotten in trouble along the way, and all of a sudden you find some franchisee and you tell her, wow, what you're doing is brilliant. They say, hey, well, what about this other thing that might not be so smart that I want to do that I shouldn't be doing? So Mm -hmm. you've got to turn it into the most productive culture around innovation without making it feel like a free-for-all and anyone can do anything they want. Well, an innovation lesson from that story is the idea is the innovation's not coming necessarily from the C-suite. Yeah, never does. Be close to the transaction, (laughs) No, they're too busy on other things. Never does. Talk about that because a lot of leaders are afraid to do that. First of all, there aren't cash registers in our corporate office. <laughs> like, and I point. love that old <laughs> saying, and I don't know what great speaker or thought leader or trainer first said it, but if you're not serving the customer directly, you'd better be serving someone who is. There's a reason the best ideas don't come from the corporate office or the corner office or whatever you want to call it. It's because that person is the farthest from the customer. Of course, the best ideas aren't going to come from there. I would never expect that it is on my shoulders to have the best ideas for every one of our brands and every one of our locations. I expect it is my job to harness those best ideas from the people doing the real work and to be a student of the industry and of customers and of employees and find inspiration from other places and maybe seed some things in the organization, but they've got to figure out how to do it. It can't be reliant on me. So I try to flip that on its head that I should be expected to have zero good ideas but I should be expected to clear the path when you do have a good idea and to help it scale when it is good for the business and occasionally challenge us to find better ideas, not just sort of be an enabler for them when we stumble upon them, but rather challenge the organization to say, here's the challenges, who's got an answer? Who's got an idea? Sometimes we run contests in the company. Say, here's Mm -hmm. a problem. Who has the best way to fix it? Here are your only few rules. Well, that's how code writers do it. I have a brother-in-law who is a hacker. He used to be a hacker for the government, and now he works for security firms. But he does all these (laughs) bug fixes, like where the company will put out a bug. They'll say, anyone who fixes this gets a bounty. Yeah. Because there's people all over the place that might have a different way of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just got to bring in those new perspectives. and. I wish I got into computer science a little bit, some of the money that he's making. But uh. Kat, uh, I used to believe that the most important thing a leader could say was, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. And that's still obviously important. But my new most important thing a leader can say is, I would be failing you. (laughs) Another lesson from your keynote this morning. Talk about why that's so important. When anyone in an organization or a relationship has something important to say that they fear or have concerns will be controversial or awkward or perceived as critical, it sometimes prevents that person from saying and addressing what needs to be said and addressed because they're worried about the relationship and how it might feel to the person. Ultimately, that is a failure of that leader's job. And sometimes leaders, not over a long period of time, but in moments and seasons of their career, get confused on what their job is. And their job is to make the most of the team, to drive toward common goals and results. And that doesn't come by being more worried about how that person will react to the coaching than it is about what will happen if you don't give the coaching. And again, I learned that by making mistakes. There were times I didn't speak up. There were times I thought, oh, that person's such a good, you know, they're such a good 
human. They're so great at their job. Generally, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And little by little, I was failing the organization by not calling out behavior. And then it turned into something that then I couldn't avoid. And then I learned, wow, I'm failing this person because if I don't correct this behavior, especially when it leads to progressive discipline or issues that need to be critiqued and coached, I'm failing them because if this continues, you know what I'm going to be doing? Firing them. And so if I don't correct it in its addressable stage, we will get to a very extreme point. And really that would be in part my fault. So the power of the belief system, and yes, the phrase, I would be failing you if, is about reframing the expectation of what my job is. That my job is to not fail you, to not allow behavior to go unaddressed or to not allow an opportunity to go missed. That is what failure is, not just leaving you alone and making you happy. (laughs) Now I have a three-year-old and I know you have an Mm 18-month-old. Are there any leadership examples that have helped you in dealing with an (laughs) 18-month-old? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, I read a few books around toddlers and toddler behavior and my toddler is definitely a strong-willed human (laughs) organically. He's my first, so I don't have anything to compare it to. So Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was strong-willed versus just a normal toddler And I remember the first time he wanted to go outside, which I loved he wanted to go outside, but it was storming and we couldn't go outside. And I told him no. And he was so cute pointing outside, outside, outside. He wanted something so bad. And because he couldn't get it, he literally threw himself on the ground (laughs) and started screaming and kicking. And I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong? Is this okay? Is this normal behavior? Is he an angry kid? Am I doing something wrong? And so I didn't know what to do. I thought, do I hug him? Is that rewarding the behavior? Do I ignore him and let him go through? I don't know what to do. And what was powerful about the lesson that came out of that and many other toddler moments that continue is it's also putting me in a very vulnerable position where I don't have the answers and reminding myself of what that feels like. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been in the same company for nine years. It's a different company than it was nine years ago and it's changed, but I know most of the franchisees and most of the employees have a deep degree of knowledge and comfort. My previous company I was with for 15 years. Again, it changed radically. The jobs were very different, but I knew those companies inside and out. There's a comfort and a confidence that comes from that. And part of what is so formative of having a toddler or any new life-changing experience is it reminds you what it's like to not have the answers. Yeah. I, I always look back on that first, you know, month of being at home, baby's crying. I have no idea what they I just shoot you out of the hospital. Like you have no idea what's going on. So being yeah. able to ask, you know, friends and family, like yeah. just being able to have just that incredibly humbling. Yeah. Incredibly humbling. And then realizing I remember the old Ken Blanchard videos where he talked about when babies are learning to walk, no one yells at them when they trip. Right. You just clap all the way on their way down. And it's so aligned with the work, human work and culture, which is you recognize, you celebrate, you clap every time they try. The celebration is around the effort, not the little boo-boo on the way to developing the skill. And it reminds me of that as well. So what do you think about this whole like work human movement and conference and, you know, what does working human mean to you? Yeah, it's needed and outdated, but here's where I'll be critical of it with love (laughs) is that it's a little bit of preaching to the converted, Mm. right? There's a lot of people here who are here for a reason because they get it and they want to get better at it. And everyone I've talked to with this woman, which I shared in my keynote last night at dinner said, we don't need to be convinced of the why. Mm -hmm. Just help us with different ways around the how. There's still a lot of people who need to be convinced of the why. So what I think about the work human movement is I would actually love to see it branched into some other functionalities and more general management and more broad media and PR. 
because when it's a human movement talking to the human departments, yeah. <laughs> again, it's needed because you want that community to get stronger and more confident and share best practices. So for that, I love it and celebrate it. But I am disappointed that the movement isn't extended farther. I'm disappointed that the comments I get, which is, you're an executive, you're a CEO, a president, a general manager, and you talk like an HR person, that's not normal, right? We're all HR people. Your business doesn't exist without humans. And so I'd love to see a way that it could sort of branch out in an appropriate way. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. subject matter expertise, maybe it's mentoring circles, maybe it's executive forums that aren't the HR people that are sharing the data and what they're seeing and talking about what is needed from leadership versus HR. Now, clearly these human professionals are going to go wield their influence in their organizations as they do and as they Mm -hmm. should, but it can't rest only on their shoulders. Yeah. And we are thinking the same. I mean, we started out as a kind of like a small HR conference Mm -hmm. and now we need to think a little bit bigger than that. We need to think about it's business leadership is anybody that wants to take a stand in bringing humanity to their company, whether they're in finance, whether they're in, you know, operations. So, so we're on that same page. It's not easy, but we're trying. You got to give people examples of what it looks like Mm -hmm. because without an alternative to their current path, it's hard, right? It's tough to, you can't be what you don't see. And if you're incredibly busy being an executive with old ways of working, or maybe not old, just already dated Mm -hmm. ways of working, and you're not aware of some of the inner workings of highly successful, potentially competitive companies, you're not likely to want to ask the question, what can I do differently and better? You would hope so because you want that self-reflection and ongoing improvement to be a part of the DNA of all leaders, but it's not, especially people who are at the pinnacle of their career on the back nine of their life, right? They're like <laughs> not looking for discomfort. They've no, earned- they're not looking to change anything. Yeah, they've earned like the cushy seat. But if I say, look, if you're taking up a seat, then don't be a blocker. Don't be a blocker mm-hmm. to someone who would come in here and make change. Be a student. It makes it more exciting while you are here. Anyway, be a student of what is working and what does it look like? And then giving them the permission to share the very real challenges. Because when you're a bigger organization with more established cultures or you're publicly traded or you have more visibility, there are super real challenges that aren't BS to bringing more heart to work. And so how do you do it in the right sequence? How do you do it at a pace that the business can handle and the employee can believe? And it not being another program or a workshop (laughs) or a speaker, but rather the way the leaders are leading. I think that would be incredibly helpful. Kat, let's close on this. If you scrolled through the Twitter feed following your presentation, there were thousands of tweets saying, Dear Kat, can I work for you? Dear Kat, be my CEO, be my boss. Why are so many leaders still afraid to be open and share the truth and be authentic and be transparent and share their mistakes and empower us to do our best work? Why is that still a battle we have to fight? Yeah. One is people come with their own shaping experiences. And maybe the company they came from and the bosses they had weren't that way. Then there's just personality, generation, other types of influences that shape how comfortable someone is being vulnerable, because it does come down to vulnerability. And vulnerability is one of the critical ingredients to building trust. But that wasn't the case 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Control and safety or what built trust. Now there's no one believes in control and safety. Therefore, how do you give Mm -hmm. me a sense that I can trust you? And it's that you're real with me, real with me about the business and real with me about you as a person. And then there's all kinds of 
psychological elements, I'm sure, and what makes us trust someone in ever-changing environments. I think that's the difference is we're not in static environments anymore. And so anyone who seems over-controlling also seems completely out of touch because they're so kind of pot committed to their path and they don't appear to be nimble. And part of being nimble is being iterative. Part of being iterative is learning. Part of learning is being self-reflective. Part of being self-reflective is humility and acknowledging you can always learn and sharing that. And so I think it comes from how they're shaped as individuals, as humans, ironically. And then their fear around, if I give an inch, will it turn into a mile of problems in my company? And they just have fear around where it goes. So it takes it being modeled at various points in the organization. You hope it starts at the top because man, is that a stronger path to cultural transformation around authenticity, but it can start in other areas in the organization, but it does take a little more courage when that authenticity isn't modeled at the top. And it's certainly difficult if it's not embraced and at least applauded from the top. Well, I think I can speak for Mike when I say how much we appreciate your leadership and how you uh, lead from the front to all of us and model how we all should be leaders. And so grateful for you, who you are and the work that you do. Should anyone need to connect with you in any way or follow your work, uh, what's the best way to do that? LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, Twitter. I use all the platforms in all their appropriate ways. So please do connect with me there. All right, Kat Cole, the president of Focus Brands, my friend. It was great to see you. Thanks again for stopping by and making time to join us. Thank you. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human March 18th through the 21st in Nashville. Visit WorkHuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2019. 